You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. We're broadcasting from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. we got a great show for you today. And as part of our Miami Book Fair um, specials, we're continuing and we're talking with the author of The Browns of California, the family dynasty that transformed a state and shaped a nation. And um, with us is Marion Powell, and she is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist turned historian. Um, she's also the book of the Crusades of Cesar Chavez, which won her a Robert Kennedy Human Rights Book Award and a National Book Critics Circle finalist for that same book. Um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, so when this year, by the way, it's an excellent book. It was very well written. Um, and the uh, the book begins with the current governor's great-grandfather, a German immigrant who in the 1860s bought a ranch that apparently Governor Brown will be retiring to. And, um, and, when he, and that is coming in this January, which will be the end. When he leaves office in January, he'll be the third longest-serving governor in American history, ending a dynasty that began when his father took office in 1859, and the two of them have really reshaped California history in different ways. Um, so the book is very timely in that respect. And I guess, what, what, what is it that led you to, to write this? Well, I think what, what the genesis of it was really exactly what you were just describing, the fact that um, the governor began to talk a lot in speeches about his great-grandfather and about the land in Northern California where his great-grandfather had settled on and the idea that he was planning to return to that land when he left office. And I was intrigued by that, that arc, um, the symmetry of um, the, the family beginning its journey in California uh, close to 
close to the beginning of statehood for California. August Shuckman, the pioneer, arrived in 1852, and California, you know, became a state in 1850. So I was very struck by the way that the family history really paralleled, in so many ways, the, fam- the history of California, and um, thought that the family, who are very interesting characters and important and obviously had a big impact on California, would be an interesting vehicle to really tell a history of California and to uh, illustrate some of the ways in which California is really a, a different and very unique place. And and that's a, a theme in your book that you've also in some of your other writings. You, you refer to it as the party of California, borrowing from um, the historian Star. Um, you give us uh, an explanation of what exactly that means. Sure. Yeah. So Kevin Starr, who was um, a, a quite celebrated California historian and and also the state librarian, it, it did play various other roles in in sort of the history of California, but uh, coined this phrase, "the Party of California." It was also used to some degree by Pat Brown, Jerry's father, who was governor for eight years in the in the late 1950s and early 60s. And it refers to the idea that there is some uh, loyalty to the idea, to the experience, and to the to the public good of California and governing in that spirit that often transcends party ideology. And I think it is something that. Um, makes California different in a lot of ways, particularly its political systems, because political parties here have from the beginning and traditionally and very deliberately been set up as much weaker vehicles than in a lot of other places. And so you have a lot of historical situations where there have been close alliances across party lines. Pat Brown, for example, was close friends with Earl Warren, who was Governor, two governors before him, and was a prominent Republican. And um, there also are issues even today in the environment, for example, in which you see a lot of working relationships between prominent Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Jerry Brown and his predecessor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, have worked closely together on a lot of environmental initiatives, particularly those designed to combat climate change. So there is this sense that there are certain values in California and and the environment is is a particularly strong one that often transcend party lines and and lead to people working together for the good of the state of California. And and as part of it, and and you're a a, transplant from New York, I moved here from Washington, D.C., is part of it just this kind of, this lure of Californians to, of its beauty, of its you know, its, its natural resources, and you know, what it, that that's a big part of the psychology of the state. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's exactly right, and it's certainly something I was struck by um, when, as you said, I moved from New York, and I I think that is something that that is something so intrinsic to the the character of it. In it, you know, the 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 weather, which lures people in and of itself and then becomes somewhat of a a punchline to a joke in the East, but the weather, um, as you know, sort of changes the way people live here, and it not only is a major factor in shaping the lifestyle of California, but also the economy of California, and the reason that the aerospace industry moved to California, the reason that Hollywood is in California and the movie industry uh, is because of the weather and the climate. 
So all of that becomes very important to preserve and becomes a, a, a very, you know, a high value both for its economic impact and also because it is what drew so many people here. And, and you get then situations where where someone like Ronald Reagan, who uh, is often thought of as a very kind of anti-environmentalist president, but as governor actually was a very strong environmentalist and championed a lot of the creation of certain agencies that, that became important tools um, in environmental regulation later on. And when I, I moved down here in late 1994, um, I was transitioning most of that year and moved right before the election. And I, I, a couple of things, and then I got involved in, in politics right away, and um, a couple of things that struck me. One was, obviously, in 1994, you had Kathleen Brown running for governor, and uh, you know, the campaign was very badly managed. Um, she ran out of money right before the end of the campaign, so couldn't have any um, didn't have any airtime um, purchase mm-hmm. for the last week or so of the campaign. And I remember the the White House was furious and said that her campaign manager should be charged with malpractice if there was such a thing in campaigns. But what what struck me in becoming becoming acquainted with California was at that time there was this sense of lost grandeur and everyone kept referring back to what uh, I when I went learned about Pat Brown I learned about people talking about what Pat Brown had built was was fading and there was this sense that uh, we we weren't keeping up with that legacy and everyone was pointing to prop 13 and so I guess you know, what that told me right at the bat was Pat Brown was really ingrained in the psyche of California and and probably still is. Right, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, in talking about the book around California, I run into people almost everywhere who have some sort of experience or encounter or, or remembrance of Pat Brown. And, you know, he presided over California during these years of tremendous expansion. And there was also a sense of, of you know, it was the, the tail end of the post-war boom in California, which was such a, an important time because the state grew so incredibly fast. Um, there there's a, were an average of a 1,000 people a day who moved to California for almost a decade. And Pat, who had this just very exuberant personality, was in some way sort of such a perfect leader for that time because he um, fought big and thought that big was better and sort of delighted in California taking over, overcoming New York to become the most populous state. So he uh, presided over the creation of um, the state water project, the master plan for higher education, which led to a, a big expansion in both the university system and the state colleges in California. Um, so it was sort of this this real um, sort of sense of California being the center of everything. And, and I think that people do look back, uh, you know, particularly in the 90s and in that depression time and so forth, looked back to the grandeur of those days. Now, he got caught at the end of his two terms when he loses to Ronald Reagan in 66. He got caught up in a lot of the, the backlash to that when suddenly... Um, you know, more people meant more traffic and more smog, and the the student uh, the the free speech movement at Berkeley was growing 
in, 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 into the anti-war movement, really, and there was civil unrest and the Watts riots and so forth. So, um, you know, he got caught of caught in the political backlash of that. But decades later, what people tend to remember are the earlier years and the the big building and expansion of the state. And it's funny you mention that because uh, one of the articles I read on on your book, um, they included a, a photo of his opening of the Santa Monica Freeway. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and <laughs> um, it, it's so much of what people talk about is, is really how Pat Brown built modern California. And, you yeah, know, the, it's very, that, that infrastructure, you're right. And the jewel of the crown is the, is the UC system, which, you know, has the, the most, I mean, obviously he did not create it, but he expanded it and, and pledged to have um, tuition-free education from, you know, kindergarten all the way to college, which was important for someone who could not afford college himself and had to go to law school at night instead. That's right, and 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 that's. I mean, I write in the book, as you know, a lot about the the university system and about the University of California at Berkeley in particular, because it was the original piece of the university system. It was the university in its early years, and that that Pat Brown sort of represents a continuation of the idea that um, higher education, accessible higher education is such an important value in California. And I found that very interesting and very much a, a theme also uh, that, that says a lot about the state. The the idea of having tuition-free higher education is actually enshrined in the Constitution in, in the 1850s. And the university began then. Uh, University of California also was er, admitted women very, very early on, way before many of the its East Coast counterparts. And then by the by 1960, when the Pat Brown creates the master plan, or he didn't create it really. Clark Kerr created it, but helps to shepherd it through the legislature and signs it into law. Um, the goal was an expansion of the system, but also really a commitment to have accessible higher education for all. And that was really something that you know spread through the rest of the country. But like many things, really started in California and you know it's quite incredible when we think about it now that in under his tenure three entire campuses San Diego Irvine and Santa Cruz were created from scratch in eight years uh, yeah I mean well some of them opened a little bit after him but but the the planning and and most of the work was done and you know I, I mean one thing worth mentioning to keep in mind is that Part of the reason that was possible was that there was no environmental movement then. There was no such thing. And so there were no environmental restrictions. There were no. There was no CEQA law. You know. Right. So one could build things a lot faster than than now. Now you you and this talk- was a lot more open space. I mean, Irvine, the city of Irvine, was actually built up around the university, and the university was the first thing that that appeared there. So. Which is an interesting thought. Yeah, there would you would think there was a city there, and the university came second. But that's interesting. The um, you mentioned Pat Brown's personality, his ubulance, and uh, and I, I've met Jerry Brown just once, and uh, he he doesn't come across like the the politician who who kind of impresses you with his warmth. And is is it fair to say that it, the, the dynasty wouldn't have happened in reverse? 
you would have had Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown exists because Pat Brown, he, you know, he, based on what Pat Brown built and Pat Brown's machine. Um, and obviously, he got reelected again and again in his own right. But would you have would would it have worked in the reverse? Would Jerry Brown have been the one to start the dynasty? Um, that's a good question. I, uh, you know, probably not. I mean, it, certainly he got interested in politics. I mean, not only was able to enter politics because his name was Edmund G. Brown Jr., right. even though he was always known as Jerry, but that was you know, an enormous help to him because the name was so well-known across the state. Um, and But but beyond that, I mean, I don't, you know, this is all very speculative, but, but it, 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 clearly he became interested in politics because he grew up in a household where he was surrounded by it all the time. You know, his father was elected, the first um, office that Pat Brown was elected to was District Attorney of San Francisco, and that was in 1943, and Jerry was five years old. So uh, he grew up, you know, in that world. Had he grown up in another world, he you know, very well might have gone in another direction. He's certainly someone with a lot of eclectic interests. Um, but I also think that, you know, it's it's hard to answer that without sort of taking into account how much they are products and politicians of their times. True. Um, one of Pat Brown's failings was his difficulty in adjusting to a world where television became the prime medium for politics, and he was not particularly good at politics. I mean, he was great at retail politics. He was the classic sort of old-fashioned politician who really loved to meet people and thought that, you know, if he could just meet everyone, shake their hands, he could win their votes. And his son is very different, but very good and very adept at the kind of, um, you know, not that kind of retail politics, but doing television and, and politics on a very, very strategic about his ability to reach people through TV and radio and cable TV and the internet and so forth. Um, so his personality and political skills are kind of suited much more to the 21st century. And we're, we're going to take a short break. We're just very quickly on on that point. Um, I think there's a quote in your book where it, I think it may even be attributed to Pat Brown where he says um, that he ran to be he ran for president of every organization even ones he didn't belong to. <laughs> which right, I, which when I, he was in high school. He was a born campaigner, that's right. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more on the Browns of California after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress. 
empowering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back and we're talking about the legacy of Jerry Brown and Pat Brown with Miriam Powell. And I, I know legacy is a word that the governor does not like um, since he still believes he's, uh, he is still very much making history. Um, so we talked a lot about Jerry Brown, excuse me, Evan Brown is Pat Brown's dad. and uh, But Jerry Brown now is going to be going, when he leaves office, will have served in office the third longest of any governor in the history of the United States and has quite a, a record in his own right. What, what stands out most to you in terms of Brown's legacy? Oh, it's hard to sort of single out one thing. I mean, he's done so much and he's been around for so long and he spans you know, such a long time. I mean, it's so such a remarkable career to have been both the youngest and oldest governor in California in addition to his, to his longevity. Um, I, I think there are different accomplishments and, 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 uh, and goals that compared to the two different times. Um, when he came in as governor in 1975, he was 36 years old. It was coming in in the wake of Watergate. He campaigned along with a proposition that he had uh, crafted and championed as Secretary of State that had to do with campaign finance reform. It created the Fair Practices Political Commission, Fair Political Practices Commission, rather, um, which governs you know, campaign finance and ethics issues. So he was very much then the face of a new generation and a different kind of government and arrived in Sacramento um, with very clearly wanting to shake up the status quo and to change things and, uh, you know, installed women and minorities in jobs they'd never had, brought in a lot of very untraditional people to state government, um, had a major impact on the composition of the judiciary, which had been overwhelmingly white male, and and so really challenged... The, the political establishment in, 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 you know, in every possible way. Uh, very instrumental in his environmental initiatives and, and, and California is it's the point at which it begins to really take the lead in regulating car emissions and imposing regulations on the, air, on the car industry through the California Air Resources Board. So that was sort of the some of the highlights of the first term, also the Agriculture Labor Relations Act, uh, which he did. In, it was one of his first and, and really major legislative accomplishments, which is still a law on the books, not used very much, but California is the only, con- the only state in the country that gives farm workers the right to unionize and has a state agency that protects those rights because cal- farm workers are not covered under the National Labor Relations Act. So, so that was a, a really rather major accomplishment of his first term. Um, and then we have sort of his interesting um, interim 
period, his resurgence in Oakland as mayor in 1998, which was a very interesting and unusual way to stage a political comeback all those decades later. And then, uh, I mean, I think one has to look at his ability to come in at a time when California was in really dire financial straits in terms of the state budget. There was a $26 billion with a B deficit uh, when he came into office the second time in 2011. And there was this sense, um, you know, somewhat comparable to what you described of sort of back in the 1990s of, of despair about state government, that California was ungovernable, that it was just too big, it was too hard, it was too messed up. And he is, was able to come in and restore, I think, you know, not only fiscal stability, for which he gets partial credit, but the economy picks up too. I mean, there are other factors, obviously. Mm -hmm. But also, I think, a sense of faith in government. You know, if you look at what the polls were showing about what people thought of their state officials, the legislature and the governor and so on, uh, back in the early aughts compared to now, uh, there, there was an enormous amount of distrust and, and, and hopelessness about state government. And I think by because in part of his experience and his commitment to public service and that whole trajectory, and, and in some ways that really is very much what ties him to his father and is a through line in the whole family of that idea of the importance of public service. So he was able to... Um, you know, to push through a tax increase that helped to balance the state budget over the a couple of years, and then also to um, just kind of restore a sense that California could be governed, could be governed sometimes even in a bipartisan manner, and um, that that there was a role for state government that was not, um, you know, not a negative thing. I'm um, part of his, you know, he has been. Um, condemned by environmentalists for some of his initiatives in some degree for, for reaching out too much to the business community. But I think if you look at that, that's also part of that idea that uh, the business community is important to California, that there one needs to sort of govern, as he says, from the middle. He doesn't use this expression that much anymore, but he used to talk about how governing was like paddling a canoe. You paddle a little on the left, you paddle a little on the right. Right. I don't really say that very much anymore, but um, but I think there is that kind of spirit, and, you know. And I I do think that overall imparting, and this is a more intangible thing, but that sense that uh, the government is not a bad thing and is not all messed up and can you know can actually do some things right, is an important piece of the overall Brown legacy. And, uh, and I I would add I, to I that. Be, I would add to that that. And start going back to where I started in '94. Um, I I don't get that sense now, and um, I I do think there's there's optimism about California, and and I, I also think the comparing um, Sacramento to Washington, I, I think California in, in in one sense has already confronted Trumpism and and defeated it and and shown a better way. Um, we had Prop 187 with, with Governor Wilson and the whole anti-immigrant thing. And, and, and it did take root to an extent. I mean, Prop 187 right. passed, although it was found unconstitutional. Right. But eventually, you know, Wilson won the 
won the battle but lost the war. And you know the, the Hispanics have completely abandoned the Republican Party, and and so what you've seen is a shift in California away from that. You know that that just no longer has any resonance really as an electoral way to success, and and right. you've seen Jerry Brown build a diverse state an economy that's booming. Um, a model exact opposite of what's going on 3,000 miles away. I think that's a hugely important point, and I, I agree very much with that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, and going back to, I mean, there's a brown tie-in, of course, to Prop 187, because that is, it, it, Wilson runs very much on that against Kathleen Brown, and very effectively. So in addition to the problems with her campaign, she's facing that, and I think one of sort of her most admirable moments is that she comes out very strongly against Prop 187 early on and sort of says, you know, no daughter of Pat Brown could possibly support this. And that was not the mainstream Democratic position at that point yet either, you know. She was sort of very early and committed to that. And that is, again, a through stream in this family, too, that some of Jerry Brown's, I think, strongest speeches in the last couple of years and most sort of really passionate ones have been about the need to, you know, California's commitment to protect immigrants regardless of their status here and really to stand up to the things that are going on in Washington. Um, and so, uh, yes, I, I, I agree. And I think also, you know, again, the demographic changes that came to California much earlier are, you know, have been and are gradually spreading across the country. And so, you know, that, that that would be the optimistic view is that other places will go through sort of what California did um, back in the 90s. But that that commitment to diversity and that idea that California is a state of immigrants, I think also was very interesting to me to trace that back to its founding because, you know, when gold is discovered in 1849, I mean, people rush into California, the whole world rushes in, you know, from from immigrants from around literally the world. And so there is a sense, um, although there have been, you know, bad and ugly times in California's history in terms of racism and anti-immigrant issues, that that fundamentally this is a state of immigrants. Um, and, and that has sort of manifested itself in different ways. And, and, the, and just to kind of wrap up, the, the Browns have consistently defended them. Um, Pat Brown was, uh, you know, he defended uh, and fought legal challenges against the internment camps. Um, You know, Jerry Brown uh, obviously has been very vocal and and, and Kathleen against Prop 187. And so I guess the the question that with the the ends of the Brown era brings is, is California the exception or is California the future? Right. I I think that's a a very important question, but you know, the other piece of it is that California, and this is what I try to, you know, sort of convey to my friends on the East Coast, having lived there and knowing what they think about California, is that California also, by virtue of its size, almost has to be the future, has to play an incredibly important role in the future, because it is the world's fifth largest economy right now. You know, it is the the county of Los Angeles has more people in it than 43 states. I mean, it, the size of California is so important that anything it does has enormous influence. And again, the car emission standards is, you know, probably the best example of that, where if California mandates that cars have to have certain emission standards and gas requirements, 
then, uh, you know, ultimately that becomes the standard because there's so many people in California buying cars. Um, so I think that people ignore the lessons of California at their peril because, uh, you know, they, 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 it, it is such a dominant force. Well, thank you very much. You'll be speaking at Miami Book Fair on November 18th, and so hopefully if people who are attending get a chance to um, check out Miriam Powell, The Browns of California, a very important book, and congratulations on an achievement. Uh, what is your next project? Uh, I don't know yet. I'm still, still talking about this one, so that's to be determined. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, um, good, good luck on the remainder of your tour. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you'll have more of Cyber Law and Business Report after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. TopSEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. You are now tuned in to the world's largest online radio podcast network for internet marketers looking to dominate the B2B marketplace. WebmasterRadio.fm WebmasterRadio.fm is home to some of the most respected authorities in all aspects of internet marketing. From SEO to affiliate marketing to social media, e-commerce, mobile marketing, and so much more. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and uh, thanks again to Miriam Powell uh, to quite an achievement, the Browns of California, the family dynasty that transformed the state and shaped the nation. And one of Jerry Brown's achievements as governor was the passage of the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And uh, California has become a leading uh, voice in privacy under Governor Brown. And so we're going to now go to a previously recorded segment we had with Chris Conley of the ACLU talking about the passage of the Cal ECPA, the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Um, our next segment, we have Chris Conley from the um, ACLU in um, San Francisco. And um, Chris is going to talk to us about a new law that um, Jerry Brown just signed um, last month called California Electronic Communications Privacy Act. Chris, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, so this is somewhat of a landmark uh, achievement, getting this law passed, is it? Uh, it is. So it, it's <clears throat> it's been significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that this is we, we think this is the strongest electronic privacy law in the nation. It not only requires a warrant for the contents of emails, um, but also for metadata surrounding those emails, the people with whom you communicate, the location from which you send those emails, 
all you know, the, the details about these these communications and these activities that we all perform online that especially in aggregate can be very revealing as to the patterns and activities and incidents of our personal lives. Um, and so this is, the, as far as we know, the first law in the country that requires a warrant for, for that broad set of information, as well as for information stored on our personal devices, our smartphones, our laptops, things like that. We had a very good Supreme Court decision a year ago that held that at least to some extent, the Fourth Amendment protects information on those devices, but California's law is a little bit broader and pertains not only to physically searching an electronic device, but also to remotely accessing it using uh, devices such as stingrays, uh, talk about more of those more later if you'd like, or other ways of trying to get information off of these devices. So we think it's a major victory in that sense. Um, it's also something that has been quite a long time coming. We have had three previous bills, actually smaller bills, trying to enact electronic privacy reform in California, all of which Governor Brown vetoed in 2011, 2012, and 2013. So we we're very happy that this year we were able to convince them that now was the time to enact comprehensive electronic privacy reform in California. What, was there any change in the content of the bill that, that was able to address whatever concerns the governor had, or did this, the whole increasing concerns about online privacy um, change things so i think i mean the, the reality is this bill is actually broader than any of the other three bills in some sense it's those three bills put together a few other it's not exactly the same there have been some amendments some of which addressing concerns about how notice and other provisions work but um it, it is it was not a, a narrowing of the bills based on comments so i think a lot of the change has to do with the you know our, our current culture and awareness of surveillance the edward snowden revelations have happened um, and, and part of what happened from that is, is, is not only has the general public uh, and the, you know, the California voters who are general, Governor Brown constituents become more aware of and more concerned about surveillance, but it's also had a real impact on the, the technology industry. Companies are very cognizant of the fact that people are becoming somewhat distrustful of sharing their information online. They recognize that out-of-date laws really harm their business. And so... This bill was supported not only by civil liberties groups such as the ACLU, but also by a broad coalition of industry, including Google and Facebook and Apple, the California Chamber of Commerce, uh, many others who are not typically, you know, who, who have not been traditionally supporting uh, this kind of bill, but they have recognized that in, in this climate, it's really important, not only for, for their consumers' trust, but it also helps them to deal with, to have a single consistent warrant standard rather than uh, an archaic set of rules that were written 30 years ago that are very hard to apply and, and put them in difficult situations when they're trying to develop brand new products that weren't contemplated when the old law was written. And they, they, they're much better off with a single clear get a warrant standard. Now, um, your colleague, Nicole Ozer, had a good article kind of discussing this in TechCrunch recently. And you know, one on your point that the, the industry wanted this, that actually at this point um, enacting this legislation is pro-business. Um, Adobe released a statement that said um, it believes that customer data stored online deserves the same protection as data stored at home or at work and that full Fourth Amendment, Fourth Amendment protections are essential to consumers trusting that their information is safe. Without trust, cloud computing can never realize its full potential. And you know, we've had other shows where we've had people talk about how you know the ongoing um, Snowden, fallout from the Snowden revelations is just killing us in Europe in cloud computing. 
And so something like this goes a long way, it would seem, to kind of bolstering our domestic cloud computing industry. Certainly. I mean, it, you know, it, it's very obvious in the international sphere, particularly in the recent weeks where you know, the safe harbor has been challenged as you know, a direct consequence of the NSA and the Snowden revelations. But even, even within the U.S., there's increasing evidence that, that consumers, that, that online users are skeptical about the ability to keep their information safe. And, and while that hasn't stopped people from using the Internet, it certainly affects the way that they use it. And, and as Adobe said, that, you know, people, fully, you know, people hold back. They, they do not fully engage with services and, and environment that they don't trust. And so making sure that we have clear, consistent, up-to-date laws that protect personal information really you know is essential not only for the international play where there are other factors at stake but even within the u.s just talking about consumers themselves this is something that again it's very clear that the industry sees this as valuable and has actively supported this well one thing that surprised me and this was also in nicole's um comments in in TechCrunch, was the degree to which these request requests for information um, from cell phones and metadata, et cetera, were being made by law enforcement without a warrant. And that uh, this is seen to be rampant. Um, and there's this increasing amount. I believe the uh, one third of the requests had only one third of the requests from law enforcement um, of the approximately 2,000 some requests um, had a had a warrant. Yeah, and this is this is exactly what what CalACPA was designed to address. CalACPA is our, our abbreviation for the Electronic Communications Privacy Act because I say that too often. I, I get my tongue tied. Um, <laughs> the, the, the the problem has been that you know in, in both the statutory and constitutional level, the the courts and law, lawmakers have not really brought existing privacy protections up to date with um, electronic and, and advances in te- technology. So, for example, the, the federal law that protects electronic information has a provision that, you re- that requires a warrant to obtain the contents of electronic communication, but only if it is in electronic storage, which is a specifically defined term, for less than 180 days. Uh, this was written in 19- the 1980s when email worked because you logged into your probably CompuServe or AOL or Prodigy or some you know, bulletin board system, basically, and you downloaded all your emails to your computer. And so the concept at that time was, well, if you left it on the server for six months, you've abandoned it. It's, it's, it's stuff you don't care about anymore. And that's obviously not the way we treat our email today. We trust our web server to keep it because they're more reliable than the hard drive on our laptop. It's actually a, a you know, it's more protected, probably technically as well. You know, Google has better security pr- protection than I do on my personal device. Um, and so it's, it has completely changed the paradigm, but the law remains outdated. And so there are loopholes and gaps and gray areas where the law currently allows access to even to content without a warrant. Now, the, the courts have started to engage with this. There was a decision called United States versus Warshak in the Sixth Circuit that said that you do need a warrant. The Fourth Amendment demands this, even if the federal statute does not. But that has not yet been you know that has not been taken up by the Supreme Court and or any other circuit, and so it's not even clear whether the Fourth Amendment covers content. And then you get to information like location, you know, communications, associational information, records of your browsing history or your purchases. All of this 
fine-grained information that is that is collected in such detail today and that can paint a very comprehensive picture of your activities and that is even lower protection in the statutory regime and has yet to really be updated in the constitutional courts. And in terms of we're talking about loopholes, would one of those loopholes be stingrays? So stingrays are, are yeah. So so stingrays are also known as um, MC devices, international mobile subscriber identity catchers. Um, these are essentially devices that act as fake cell towers. They they. You can station a stingray somewhere and it will say, hey, connect to me and I'll you know, tell me who you are, cell phones, and I will route calls to you. Um, in doing so, the cell phones nearby are encouraged to hand over their identifying information so that the stingray and whoever's operating it can determine which cell phones are nearby. Um, and these have been used, you know, there have been many problems with these, but the two most obvious are, number one, they have not been used with consistent legal process. It, it seems that uh, the, the, the federal government has recently announced a policy that they will use stingrays with only they will get a warrant before using a stingray. Um, that implies they have not always been getting a warrant in the past, at least. Um, and other other entities in, at the state and local level, it's not clear what they are doing. Um, and in, in addition, stingrays have been used very conspicuously in ways that have hidden their existence. You know, cops have essentially lied to the courts about what's going on. They have claimed that a confidential informant told them that a person was in a residence when, in fact, they used a stingray to determine that. They have broken down doors to houses to avoid getting a warrant because getting a warrant would require them to explain to the judge what it is, why it is they believe a person is in the house. And so this, you know, the, both the lack of adequate legal process protecting this <clears throat> It, and the lack of transparency have been problematic. And the legal process is particularly relevant here because stingrays, by design, capture information not about one specific person, but about every phone that's nearby. Now, they right. can figure to not use that, but <clears throat> that's not automatic. And so knowing how they're being used is certainly important. And we definitely wanted, you know, it, this is something that is new technology that the courts have not really, have, have just started to grapple with, partly because they are just becoming aware of it. And we wanted to make sure that that, our, that California's privacy law encompassed not just, you know, searching my phone by taking it out of my hand and, and flipping it with your fingers, but using a stingray or using, you know, a, a remote exploit or whatever it may be to access data on my phone without physically interacting with it. And, you know, especially one thing that's been very troubling in the stingrays is sometimes they have actually dismissed cases against defendants rather than have to disclose information about the use of the stingray. So yeah, that's you know, right. apparently it's thought you know, valuable to, to be used to catch you know, perceived criminals, but you know, they would rather have those criminals on the street than actually disclose what's involved in using it. That's right. troubling. That, that's very troubling. I mean, that, that kind of turns the, the, the you know, that, that is the purpose of law enforcement is to protect public safety. And if, secrecy has somehow superseded public safety as a goal, that, that's deeply problematic. You know, and it also suggests that you know, law enforcement is increasingly viewing what they're doing, like secrecy is paramount and you know, it, it can be very dangerous to our democratic society when it becomes an us versus them mentality. We can't tell them being the population what we're doing at all. We will, you know, again, we will decline prosecutions. We will let people walk the streets because we're not willing to use the evidence we collected uh, now, maybe we're not use, willing to use it because we would have to admit that we used it. We got it illegally. That's a completely different story. But 
there should be, and, and I think at least with Stingrays, we are finally seeing responsible policies around how to adopt these uh, or when they can be deployed. But that's still very much a work in progress. Now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall reading any, anywhere in the Fourth Amendment the words, trust me. <laughs> uh, that, that is not in there. Uh, <laughs> the Fourth Amendment is about the right of the people to be secure. Um, and that the right of the people, it's not the right of law enforcement to engage in surveillance without transparency, without judicial oversight, without the protections of, of a search warrant. Um, you know, not to say that, you know, then there need to be an, an R in Calacba and in federal law exception. You know, if there is a burning building, you don't need to go back and get a search warrant to figure out who's in it. If there's a, you know, a, a suspect fleeing or threatening to destroy information, there have to be some kind of provisions where a search warrant is not immediately available. But right. at the same time, and this is one of the things we also thought about, um, there should be after the fact validation. It shouldn't be, well, I'm going to say there's an emergency, so you have to give me everything. And it's completely outside of the scope of this law. It needs to be not just an exception, but a post, you know, ju justice right. Postponed, right? There's obviously justice delayed, is justice denied to some extent, but we want to make sure that a judge does eventually see this. That you are, you know, this was why I didn't get a warrant right away. This is why I could have gotten a warrant if I had the time. Um, you know, basically going through a, a, a an after the fact evaluation of whether this was a legitimate warrant. <coughs> you know, what any kind of surveillance or any demand for information is very important in this context. Now. Um We've talked a little bit about the, the, the federal law, which is somewhat dated. And last several years, there's been a lot of effort and, and a lot of lobbying from the tech industry for an update to the Federal Electronic Communications Privacy Act. We, we're, why hasn't that passed, do you believe? And, and where are we now in this Congress? Um, so I, I, I am based in San Francisco. I, I uh, it fully qualified to say why it has not passed, but I think yeah. we what we have seen is you know there has been pushback, and I I'm I'm very hopeful that with the Snowden revelations that not just in California but through you know in D.C. as well, constituents are are telling their legislators that this is important to me, that this is valuable. Um, this was also part of our purpose for for pushing this bill in California. It was not simply to protect Californians, but to really try to move forward the national conversation. We, you know, we believe that this, hopefully, CALACPA can be a model for possibly for other states to begin with, like that, you know, other states across the country could take this and enact this and eventually ratchet up the pressure on D.C. to get it done. Um, as to exactly why, again, that's that's beyond my pay grade. Um, I, I, there are certainly, the, there has been, I mean, there are 300 Republican co-authors of the, the current sitting bill uh, but it's still having trouble getting through committees and getting out to the floor. Uh, and that's something that I, I think is going to take, you know, continued pressure, may take some changes in the regime hearing. I don't know whether the House will uh, look a little different in the next few months, given the leadership change, but maybe that will be what it needs. Could be. And one, one, we only got a few minutes left, but one quick question, you know, given what you do, and, and you obviously you're in San Francisco, clearly a very um, – aware tech community um where what has been the reaction in terms of people coming to you who you know normally maybe would not you know just saying i'm concerned 
you know, do you just in your interactions, are you seeing an increase in concern or, you know, tr- uh, maybe some perplexedness of about what's going on? I think we definitely are. You know, we there there has you know there, there's an awareness that surveillance happens and that there are legitimate needs for surveillance. Even when you know keeping our country safe, arresting criminals means sometimes doing things in secret, sometimes obtaining information that would ordinarily be private. But what we have seen and what people have really expressed concern about is is turning the mantra of you know transparent by default into secret by default. Um, turning the mantra of we always get a warrant to we only get a warrant if we absolutely have to. And if we can right. find any way to go around that, we do so. And, and so we have really, you know, that, that has resonated with people, with companies, with individuals, um, even with law enforcement who really have seen their public relationships erode because the communities, uh, particularly communities of color, religious communities are increasingly skeptical that they are treated as members of community and rather than targets of surveillance. Uh, and so the San Diego Police Officer Association was actually one of the supporters of this bill. And they said that we think this is really important step for us to stand, step forward and say we can protect public safety and respect individual rights, that we don't we need to go through the process. We need to get a judge to approve this in order to convince our community that we have their best interests at heart. And so I think really that that, that was one of the one of the key things for Cadillac. But I think it's one of the things that is changing is that communities, especially, again, communities of color, Islamic communities, uh, feel like targets. They don't feel like the police are there to protect them. They feel like the police are there to threaten them. And the more that transparency and accountability are built into our laws, the easier it is for police to rebuild those relationships. Okay, we only have two minutes left. Um, If people want to learn more about what you and the ACLU are doing on this issue, where should they go? Um, so the, the ACLU Northern California is at ACLUNC.org. Uh, you can also learn more about the federal effort to reform this. Uh, the main coalition working on this in federal level is Digital Due Process, Digital DUE Process, Digital Due Process.org. I just say it rather than try to spell it out. Um, and it, it just, you know, it, it's, something, it's something that definitely is getting traction in D.C. So the more you can do to um, join efforts locally and at the federal level to kind of push this ball forward, uh, the better off we will all be and the more likely we are to have technology that flourishes and privacy laws that keep up with our modern technology rather than are dated before the introduction of the World Wide Web. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you and thank you for this insight and congratulations on your, your hard work paying off. This is an important development in California. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for joining us. Joining us next week on Cyber Law and Business Report. Check us out um, on cyberlawradio.wordpress.com for our show notes and follow us on Twitter at CyberLawRadio. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.